how bad things often happen at nighttime. Isn't that interesting? I think it's true. Infamously, Charles Spurgeon, the one of, called the Prince of Preachers, um, if you read his sermons still today, it can have a stirring of the soul so much that he has a, a turning of phrase that just like impacts you. But a number of people in the southern United States absolutely hated him because he was a staunch abolitionist. So much did they hate, me, hate him that quote-unquote vigilance committees would find his sermons that were mass-produced and sent over to the United States, and they would collect them, and they would burn them. One wrote, and I quote, Last Sunday, we devoted to the flames a large number of copies of Spurgeon's sermons. We trust that the works of this greasy, cockney, vociferator may receive the same treatment throughout the South. Throughout the southern states, bonfires were illuminated, supposedly, recordedly, jail yards, plantations, bookstores, and courthouses. Even churches would often gather for a potluck dinner, as we're going to have tonight, and then they would head out back when the sun went down, and they'd burn Spurgeon's sermons in vile anger and protest. Isn't it crazy what people feel like they can do on the cover of night? Like There is a sense where just night falls and we're just like, eh, I don't know about this, but I'll, I'll join in or, well, you know, maybe they can't see me as clearly and an excuse takes place. So throughout the Bible and especially in the book of First Thessalonians chapter five, Paul says, don't live in the darkness, bring everything to the light. I think so thankfully even Pastor Yuri saying there's something good about confession publicly. Well, then here's something that is wrong with me. And may other people pray for me. Bring it into the light. Now, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you would. Um, you will recall, looking back at chapter 4, he has called them to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And he said again and again, you don't need anyone to tell you about this. You got this. You know this truth. But in end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, he actually spends a lot of time talking about the resurrection and how the second coming of Jesus will take place, but the people weren't worried about Jesus coming back. They were worried about the resurrection. They thought the dead were dead forever, that they were lost, and there was no hope. And Paul had to correct them, no, the dead will rise first when Jesus comes back at the rapture. Uh, we talked about this idea in ch chapter 5, 1 through 4, about the suddenness of Jesus' coming. And we talked about different opinions on the matter and how there is a view of premillennialism, amillennialism, or postmillennialism. And I tried to say at least that I believe, and I thought the Bible teaches, and the Thessalonians would have known that Jesus would have come like a thief in the night, meaning without warning, he'd come back things are going to get worse until the day that Jesus returns and he sets all things right. That was the standard that we were going to set. Can you just hold on a second? Yeah. So that, that is what we talked about. And, and one of the things we said is this idea of humble orthodoxy. We have to stick true to what the Bible says uh, and yet at the same time be humble with what maybe isn't as clear. Oh, we, we can't know the exact timing of the Lord's coming. Maybe we could have a little bit of confusion over, you know, the order of things. But we say Jesus is coming back, and, and we believe we know this, this, and this about his return. And we can disagree about a lot of those things because God doesn't give us the exact details, but just have to live in light of God's teaching in his word. We know there is truth. Now, last week, you might recall, Pastor Yuri gave this wonderful list of Paul's apologetics. Right. And after Shepherd's Conference, he asked me to teach. And I was like, do you want me to get in the way of your apologetics time? And it's like, oh, no. Uh, th that's why I've titled this the apologetic for daylight self-control or daylight living in there. Um, you know, the apologetics is the defense of the faith. And this is not really about defending the ideas of the faith, but this is about defending the life of faith. Paul is trying to get his readers to practice the faith and thus us to say we have to 
practice the faith. Uh, Today, we're going to try and get through this section and see two reasons for living a self-controlled life, two reasons to do so. I'm going to have the first section um, in verses 4 through 7, and then we'll hit on uh, 8 through 11. But read along with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Thus says the word of the Lord. Again, two motivations, two reasons for living a self-controlled life. The first one is the simple truth. The children of the light are different from the dark. Why should you be different? Because it reflects your family, your heritage. The children of the light are different from the dark. Verses four and through seven, four through five, we'll contrast, we'll see the contrast first between these two. So how are they different? He's going to state the contrast and then exemplify the contrast between the light and the dark. Four and five says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So you'll see a change in verse four. If you're reading along from earlier in the section, you will see that they're talking about the they. People are saying in verse three that, um, and they will not escape. But he says, but you. So different from this group that will not escape is the you, the Thessalonians, the readers. While the church needs to know the fate of those who receive this sudden destruction, because of the return of the judge, judgment will come upon unbelievers. Those who reject Christ, who do not obey him, will receive judgment. But the but shows that the church expects something different, and they're supposed to respond in a different way. Darkness is not just the lack of light during the day that we have. You know, daylight savings time, here we are. It started off earlier this morning when I got up, and yet the light is going to last longer, right? And so we think, oh, darkness. But throughout the Bible, darkness refers to ignorance resulting in spiritual destruction. Or it could be corresponding works of evil, those works that go along with an evil heart. In Romans 13, 12, for example, Paul writes, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 12. So there's works of darkness. So we're not that kind of dark. The brothers, instead, he calls them brothers, family members, are not surprised. We've said many times they don't know the exact hour of Jesus coming back. It's not like, oh yeah, countdown, here we go. Matthew 24, 36 but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows the hour of Jesus' return. Matthew 24, 36. The believers, however, know the king is coming. He is going to review and reward on the day of his judgment. He is going to make judgment calls. And verse 5 says that the, they know this because they are children of the day with a different life. It's common understanding that children follow the lives of their parents, especially in ancient eyes. Like they, they, you look like your parents, you do the job of your parents. 
It was interesting. I, I was um, recently went to meet my wife somewhere, and there was she was talking with a lady who had met my wife and my children before, and I walked up to the table to greet them, and she looks at me, she looks at the children, and she's like, oh, it makes sense now. I see all the family connections, because you, you look at my children, like they have different hair color, different eyes, but when you put all of our family together, you're like, oh yeah, I see where everyone comes from, right? How, how much of it is like that? When you put family members together, you see the connections. Children do the jobs of their parents so much so that often becomes part of their name. I, I just in the past few years found out that the name Bogstead comes from those who worked at this Norwegian castle, this Norwegian manor, and they were the workers at the Bogstead Manor, and so they were given the title Bogstead. And so that's where my name comes from. The slaves or servants, depending on how you take it, of the manor, the Bogsteads. That that was throughout history. That was your defining nature. You were the children of your parents. And you did what they did. You looked like what they do. And so children of the light are not defined by the ways of darkness, but the ways of light. Their lives express differently. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says to the Ephesian church, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found and is all that is good and right and true. And now try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 7 through 10. So being children of light means that there will be actions of right, light. And there's a strong distinction. There's this famous Shakespeare line where he says, Good things of day begin to droop and drowse, while night's black agents to their praise do rise, do rouse. Like, that's good. Like, they, yeah, yeah. Like, night is where they're stalking and hunting. And so, Paul goes on to say, we, we've decided there's, there should be a difference. So what does that difference look like? Verse 6 through 7 the contrast with the dark is exemplified. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, just as a way of correction, sleep is not always a bad thing in the Bible. Okay? I've had some people who are like, oh man, well, I, I, don't, I don't need to sleep. I'm going to just stay up and pray. I can sleep when I'm dead. And I go, oh, well, you might die a little bit sooner if you never sleep, okay? Um, and, and the Bible actually paints things differently. For example, in Psalm 127, verse 2, the psalmist writes, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. It's pointless if you try and push really hard. For God gives to his beloved sleep. He's saying God has to be the one to grant you sleep. Sleep is a gracious gift from God at the end of a long day of work when you know that though your energy is spent, you've done all you've could, God keeps working and you must rest. In his excellent book, um, Humility, True Greatness, Humility, True Greatness, C.J. Mahaney writes, each night as I confront my need again for sleep, I am reminded that I am a dependent creature. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not the creator. There is only one who will never sleep nor slumber, and I am not that one, right? I love sleep. It's a great blessing that God grants to the one who can't do everything and has to tr trust in him to act when I sleep. But, but So the Bible says sleep is good, but there's also a bad kind of sleep. There's a lazy kind of sleep. Um, and specifically here, myself and most commentators believe that Paul is not just making a mention about sleep. He's referring to the teachings of Jesus. If you can, hold your finger here in 1 Thessalonians and go to Matthew chapter 25.
Matthew chapter 25, we have the parable of the 10 virgins. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oils with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And that while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, come to us. But he answered, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You see the context? One of the key things with parables, you can kind of work through all that and you're like, why didn't they share, right? Like, what's going on? That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is the last sentence. That's always the point of the parable. And Jesus says, watch therefore, for you don't know the day nor the hour. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about those who are waiting the day and hour of his return. Uh, And it was a Jewish custom at the time for the groom and his friends to leave his home and proceed to the home of the bride, where the marriage ceremony was conducted often at night. They would have day-long celebrations, marches through the city. It was a big, joyful affair. The entire wedding party returned to the groom's home after the wedding for a celebratory banquet. And it was the responsibility of each person to prepare to go with the bridegroom to the wedding banquet. And they they showed their love for their friend by being ready. Now, the point of the parable, Jesus is saying, is these people didn't really care very much. So they weren't ready for him to run. They didn't expect him. They didn't prepare for his arrival. And so he's saying, watch correctly. Wait. Be ready for the arrival of the Son of Man, the arrival of Jesus Christ. You all know Paul was one of the apostles untimely born. And in fact, he was a persecutor of the church originally. He didn't follow Jesus around, but he had studied the teachings of Jesus. He knew them like we know them secondhand. And he based so much of his thinking on the teachings of Jesus Christ. He used it well. The darkness he's talking about is bad. And this is a time where people get drunk at night, where they live foolishly at night, where they miss the Lord. And so he is saying, don't fall into apathy, into sleep, where you're not ready for his return. That is the focus of all things of eschatology. Be ready for his return. Uh, Think about it for a second, how different the sunrise is from darkness at night. It's hard to think of because I, 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 this is just one example of a photo, right? The, the twilight era at the beginning because we, we don't really see darkness because what happens, of course, we know that as the earth spins, the light hits the atmosphere. And while it's not, you don't directly see the sun yet, light starts forming, right? It, it comes over the mountains. You can sometimes see the stars as this lovely picture is. And it, gets, it, it enters our air and we're able to see long before we see the source of the light, right? And so it's kind of hard for us to sometimes think what idea of like suddenly coming. Think less of day and night and more of being in a pitch black room. Picture it, pitch black. Not a sight, like you, you hold your hand in front of you and you cannot see it. That kind of dark. You, you've been in those situations, right? And then picture suddenly a light or a flame is struck and suddenly the the light scatters the darkness isn't that interesting think about that is even areas even if you're not right in front of it the light just fills the dark place and suddenly you can see little bits and pieces of what's there even with a scattered light 
the, the beauty of a, of a fire on a dark, dark night, which illuminates what's around it. This is the key idea that the light should be utterly different from the dark. Not just like the sunrise, a gradual thing, but the difference between a pitch black space and light flashing. We, as Christians, followers of the one who is the light, should live differently. We should want our families to live differently. We should be aliens and strangers in this world. And the problem with living differently from darkness is that light hurts when you're used to the darkness, right? You all know the experience of being in darkness and someone flashing a large strobe light or even a flashlight in your face, right? And it hurts. There's physical pain as your photoreceptors shrink in response. And so after that famous line in John 3.16, John, we love John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And yet John 3.19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3, 19 through 21. Being true to the light will make you different. It'll make you strange. It'll make you weird. It'll make you annoying. And sometimes it'll upset those around you. It will, all those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted, but it's worth it because it's true. It's worth it because the light, it is better to see in the light than to be lost in the darkness. Even our own problems, right? So what does that life look like? We saw just, there is a difference there. And so the second part, verses 8 through 11, is him saying, children of the light live differently from the dark then. If there is a difference between the light and the dark, then secondly, children of the light live differently from the dark. Verses 8 through 10 expresses this in saying that One way they live differently is they dress differently than the dark. Verses 8 through 10. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Those who are, the day, who are of the day dress differently from the dark. And they dress with sobriety. The word sober means watchful, circums- circumspect. Not just the removal of alcohol from one's body, but right thinking in their mind in the midst of all the shadows of the world. And he talks about Those who are sober, he says, if you are sober, then, um, then having, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith. Now the armor of faith is seen in many different ways, right? And, And often it's pointed to being that of a Roman soldier. We talk about there many different pieces of armor that the Roman soldiers wore, the helmet, the spear, the shield, the belt, the sword, all these different pieces. And, and there is some truth to that often. It's talked about during the, um, especially the prison epistles, Paul would have written in the presence of a Roman soldier. So maybe that influenced him. However, I want to say, and I think a lot of good Bible teachers will point out, Paul's not just drawing from the Roman world. 
he's drawing from the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 59, 17. Isaiah 59, 17, talking about God, says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God put on the powers of a fully equipped warrior because God not only forgives sin, he opposes sin with all his might. The helmet would cover the head, of course, is the image. The um, torso would be covered by the breastplate, both front and back. But you might be thinking, of course, oh, armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, right? And let me point out just a few ways. We know, I, I, I kind of like this image. This was, a cool, this was a cool way to write it out here. You know, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, right? But here in 1 Thessalonians, he says the breastplate of faith and love. A couple more, right? Um, he says, you'll stand the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, um, he has the shield of faith, which can distinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul doesn't go into quite as many details here in 1 Thessalonians, nor does he correspond it exactly the same. And, and I think this is a reminder to us that when you are reading images throughout your Bible— be careful not to overread into the image. Paul's not trying to say like, oh, so you know what? You need very much here. He's like, okay, so this is the um, helmet of hope for salvation. So you know where you know where that hope needs to reside? In your head, because your head is where you hope. No, that, that's not his point, actually. His point is just dress with these things. It's the whole protection of the armor. He's not trying to make a nice point for each one because he uses it differently. He keeps using armor points throughout the Bible. Instead, think of it like this. In one dis device, device, divisive, in one decisive act, in one decisive act, a child of darkness is convinced of their evil ways and they take off their armor of night they changed their allegiance and all that black that they used to wear to show that they were a child of night. And they swear allegiance to the king of light. And so what do they do when they swear allegiance to him? They change their armor. The color changes because now they are marked as followers of the king of light. That makes sense? We still do this like throughout history. There's always been a way of your, your colors marked which army you were part of or else you would get friendly fire or you wouldn't know which way to go. This is the image often given. Here, as throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, he focuses on the key three, faith, hope, and love. Did you notice that? I guess what he said, it's, it's the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope, of salvation. These are the same great foundations he used in chapter 1, verse 3, saying, We remember before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes it back there again at the end of the book. Faith can sometimes be really vague. But the word just means trusting in God's way with such intensity that you throw yourself into it. I will do whatever he says to do because I trust him. Love is not merely empty affection, but as he says in chapter one, it includes labor, labor of love. Hope is what inspires and creates endurance, not just a passive resignation of, I hope this will happen, but I know this will happen. Salvation will take place. And the armor belongs to those who have a different destiny. He says, 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If it's interesting, you, you do a comparison of world religions, every cult that is out there, every philosophy of man, and ultimately you will see very many different ways that you can make yourself better. Even every self-help book out there is, hey, girl, wash your face, do this thing, right? Men, be the kind of man, be the conqueror, be the king, discipline yourself for righteousness, then you will be able to do what is right. Biblical Christianity is actually, it's what's been done for us. It's been done to us. It's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. God's wrath is his just anger at evil done by people. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 7, 5 through 7, Paul says sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. God's wrath is against evils that you and I have done, right? We, we lived in them before Christ. At times, they sneak their way back in. Our old sins enter into our life once again. And God comes to judge these. He is holy, holy, holy. And so when he looks at sin, Zephaniah 2 verse 2 says, There comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Paul's talking about the day of the Lord. And he is knowing that when Jesus returns, there will be judgment. Famously in his great book on preaching, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the excellent 20th century British preacher said, if I did not believe the doctrine of the wrath of God, I would not understand the death of Christ upon the cross. It would be meaningless to me. You know, we talked about darkness, right? Think of the night sky, the blackness of it that allows the moon to shine in contrast. During the day, you cannot see the moon, though often it is there, and sometimes it'll peak up, or, or the stars. You definitely can't see the stars at night, right? The blackness of the sky allows you to see so. The same way, much like you go to a diamond store, and I, and I, I was able to upgrade my wife's um, my wife's wedding and engagement ring at our 10-year anniversary. And what do the jewelers do? They get that nice black velvet and they put it out. So then they drop the diamond on and they're like, ooh, look how pretty it is, right? Like, you, you see it and you're like, oh yeah, that's nice. And then they put that on the black and you're like, oh, now I really see that. Wrath is the stark contrast that shows God's grace and gives us the light to live righteously. It is only the motivating factor for you to do what is right when you stop and go, well, here's that blackness that I deserve, but I'm not getting it. Praise the Lord. Instead of wrath, salvation awaits. Again, look down your Bible. You'll see in verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. That is the idea of future. The idea of destined is something that's going to happen in the future. It's presenting destiny or outcome. And this is the idea then that somehow we are going to obtain salvation. This doesn't mean, oh, salvation is by works. If you do the right thing, then you will be saved from your sins. It's that you don't have the full salvation yet. It's often said in theology, and I think it's rightly so, and we, we could take time to look through all the different passages, but we don't have time for that tonight. If you want to talk with me more about that, I can take you through some of them. But there's three moments of salvation. There is the past when you are saved from the judgment of sin, when you first bow your knee to Jesus Christ and you ask his forgiveness, the judgment is no longer upon you. 
Currently, you are now being saved from the power of sin in your life. As you struggle less with certain sins that you used to struggle with, as you realize that you have more sins than you thought you did, and you're like, okay, I got to deal with those as well. The hidden sins are revealed and you slowly grow in Christ. But one day when Jesus returns, or if you are taken home to be with the Lord, you will be freed from the presence of all sin. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Like, like that helps you as you walk through. You're not this side of heaven going to be free of sin. You're going to struggle. You're going to fight. You're going to feel that weight. You're going to be like, what is wrong with me? That's the point because it's coming. It's destined to take place. It is a sure thing. You will win, but not yet. Because, verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Jesus died for a sinner like you. This is the atoning death of Jesus Christ. A big, important theological word, which means we don't get the wrath of God. Jesus did. Now, he says here, sleep, right? And so this can be a little bit confusing because Paul is using the words in an interesting way. This is not the, the verse six sleep of those who are lazy. He's like, well, if you're lazy or you're awake, either way, you're going to live for Jesus. No, he's actually referring back to chapter four, verse 13, where he said, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as those others do who have no hope. This is refers to the dead. So Paul's flow of argument is a little bit interesting. He often does this. It's a different time than ours. Just you got to go with it. He's going, oh, I, I know you're worried about people who have died and you, you think that they're gone forever, that Jesus has lost them, that they've lost Jesus. And he goes, no, that's not true because resurrection happens. Jesus was resurrected. They'll be resurrected. And because the resurrection is real, Jesus is coming back. Oh, and let me tell you another kind of sleeping that's out there, right? He, he kind of uses that hat and has the same idea. Don't, don't be lazy like those sleepers over there. Instead, live for Christ as Paul exemplified and realize that, you know, whether you are awake on earth or asleep in death, you will be with Jesus. Paul said this similarly in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live to, is Christ and to die is gain, right? Philippians 1, 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The dead and the alive have the same God and Savior. Think of it this way as well. Who rejoices when the judge comes? When does a child rejoice when they hear the phrase, just wait until your father gets home? And you know what? Horatio Stafford thought about that. We often don't think of this, but in the great song, it is well with my soul. And I don't know if you've ever been singing the song and you get to the line, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And you go, why does he say, even so, it is well with my soul when the king is descending? Because, read the book of Revelation like when, when the king comes back, he doesn't come back as a meek and mild carpenter. He comes back as a conquering king on a horse with flaming eyes and swords coming out of his mouth. He is terrifying and he has wrath against sin. It is frightening. But he can say, it is well with my soul. I'm not afraid because... Who has paid the price for our sin? That very conquering king, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message. And this is important 
because some theologians and, and pastors have said over the years that the gospel message is kind of confusing. Like we hear the word gospel. What does that even mean? What's the good news? Well, the good news is that Jesus is the king of the world. That's the good news. Jesus is king. Caesar isn't king. Biden isn't king. Jesus is king. And while that is good news in one sense, because Jesus is good, he does good. It's very bad news if you're Jesus' enemy, right? Because what will that good king do to his enemies when he returns? He will destroy them with his justice. Not, not, not a out-of-control anger, but a precise judgment upon their actions. And so the good news, the gospel, is that this king died for sinners, died for his enemies. He took their sin upon himself. And he said, everything that I have is yours. And I make you not just forgiven. I make you my co-heirs. You get all the great things that God possesses. And with that comes the commission. He doesn't just say, all right, now you're forgiven. Relax. He's like, here, here's some armor. Put it on. Go to battle. Work with me. So, the good news must then come along with good deeds. And we have to remember that the good news must come along with good needs. Every day when you get up in the morning, like you, you put on your clothes. I think most of us, maybe there's a few people who sleep in the same clothing. But most of us, we wear different pajamas at nighttime. We get up in the morning. We put on our work clothes to go about and seize the day with whatever tasks you have, right? You do your hair, you put in your contacts, ladies, lots of makeup, however you do it, whatever it is, I don't understand. I'm having to learn. I'm still going to learn. But we all get ready for the day, right? And we, we intensely focus on it. For the Christian, when we wake up in the morning, it is one more time for us to put on the armor that God has given you. You need faith hope, and love to do what God has called you to do. So you start the day asking, like, Lord, please once again equip me. Remind yourself you need God's word to know what will take place and what you will need to do to love others. The Puritan William Gurnall said, You have now, Christian, the armor of God, but take heed Thou forgettest not to engage the God of this armor by humble prayer for your assistance, lest all this be worsened in the fight. Isn't it brilliant? Like you have the armor of God, do not forget to pray to God that the armor might be used well. This will result ultimately in the last part of the sermon, different interactions with others. How do people Act differently than others. Verse 11, children of the light hope differently from the dark. Verse 11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Hope differently from the dark. The conclusion of Paul's discussion goes all the way back to chapter 4, verse 13. These two big paragraphs, he's trying to bring up, you're sad, but I don't, want you to, I don't want you to grieve as others do, so let me explain to you, Jesus is coming back, Jesus will restore the dead, and you need to live differently now, so be encouraged. It's a present imperative, meaning do it over and over and over again. Keep encouraging one another. The goal of knowing about eschatology, the goal of knowing about the second coming of Jesus is not just knowledge, nor is it to hold the line against some forces of darkness out there, but the goal of eschatology is to build up. Notice it says that. Build one another up. Not even just you. You have been given a part, a brick, to put into someone else's building. This should be the goal of all of our words. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion 
that it may give grace to those that hear. The, Ephesians, the Thessalonians were already doing this. They were doing what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, and more. And this is the idea that hope was in their very house rules. Did, did you guys have house rules growing up? You know, maybe your parents put them on you. You know, do's and don'ts for the house. Take your shoes off before you walk on the carpet. Though some of you are like, shoes do not enter the house. They stay in a little basket outside the front door. Um, other people like, no elbows on the dining room table. You know, don't slam the doors. The household of God also has a series of rules. They are called the one another's. Alelon. Alelon. The one and others. Used a hundred times in 94 verses. 47 of the verses are given instructions to followers of Jesus, telling them what to do. 60% of those are written by the Apostle Paul. These are what we are to do with each other. One of them that we see repeated again and again is encourage one another. But it's not just encourage one another, like, hey, you're great. And you know why you're great? Because you're just awesome. You're just, you're just a 10 out of 10. You look beautiful all the time. You are strong and mighty. No, it's encourage them with theology, with God who is perfect, God who is mighty. Again, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the benefits of going to Shepherd's Conference is hearing a lot of wonderful teaching all at one time. Uh, the theme of this year was the remnant, shepherding the remnant. And we often look, at least I find myself often looking at the world of darkness and just going, we're losing. Like, and, and interestingly enough, every generation does this. Like it just, I, I read a quote recently. He says, you know, it, it only takes, um, I think it was uh, J.R. Stott who said, Every 30 years, Americans wake up and start to question why America is losing their faith in God. And he's like, and this has been happening for the last three centuries. Okay, that, I will take that as a, as a, as a gracious rebuke. Um, but this is the idea. Like we look and we're like, wow. And yet when you go from Genesis to Revelation, who does God say he is working with? The remnants, that small group in the midst of the crowd. He preserves that small group. He is thankful for them. We were encouraged in so many ways. Pray for the remnant. Shepherd the remnant. Know that the remnant will succeed. And I think one danger when it comes to, to sermons and listening to sermons and preaching sermons is at times we can always think, oh, yeah, so-and-so needs to stop doing this, right? Like, you know, when, when, you, when there's a conviction, like, oh, that was a really good convicting point. I'm going to give the, uh, the sermon the pastor preached to my friend or to my husband or my wife, so they'll stop doing this thing to me, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not a good idea. Well, we should always say first and foremost what I must do with this. But it is good to think how can I take this truth and encourage someone else? How is this theology that I just learned a brick that I can place into someone else's structure that God is building? And while pastors have a place in that, we're not the only ones. Sometimes it comes more powerfully from each other. Or maybe there's someone I have no contact with that you can take the truth to. Think of blessing others. We've seen two reasons to live self-controlled lives. Those who live for the day and night are different, and these two groups then live very differently. Jerry Bridges, writing on self-control, says, it is impossible to be a follower of Jesus without giving diligent attention in our lives to the grace of self-control. Self-control, living for the day, is so important. Someone once told me, and it's probably true, that it doesn't make take too much self-control to stay up late at night. It just happens, right? You're just like, the time just got away. You know what takes a lot of self-control? To go to sleep, <laughs> especially when there's more to be done. Perhaps that is true. 
You know, waking up in the morning is, is hard. It takes a lot more self-control. But less than when you wake up, it's how you wake up. Focusing not just on what you must do, but on what God has done and what he will do. Milton Vincent in the great, great devotional, The Gospel Primer, writes, The gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God, a standing which Christ himself has accomplished and always maintains for me. I never have done a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I can now put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. The gospel frees you. You are not good enough. Jesus is. So now, instead of trying to be good enough, go and build others up, little by little. Let me pray. Lord, let us live for that life, Jesus. We pray that we might be more like your son and that you would use our weak ways. Lord, we want to be different from the dark. We want to live self-controlled. But Lord, more than that, we, we need, Lord, to have faith and love. We must trust you. We must love other people. Lord, we, we know yet you will come through. And so as we get up each and every day, may we seek to serve you. And whatever you call us to, to the praise of your glorious name, Jesus Christ. Amen.